So I've got a question, and I'm sure you all can relate to this. Uh, have, have you ever been asked to do something without fully knowing what that was going to entail, and you agree to it? I, 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 th I think we all have at times, you know, out of the kindness of our heart, or maybe a friend, relative, neighbor, maybe a stranger, uh, asks us to do something, and we sign on, we say yes, and we go along with it without fully knowing, understanding, or being aware what exactly we were saying yes to, even though in our head we may have had an idea or thought of what that was going to look like. Um, several years ago, I had a friend, and, uh, and we weren't like close friends, but we were close enough where we'd do stuff for one another if we needed, and, and uh, he and his wife, and they just had a newborn baby, uh, were moving. And so he asked me if I could come and help him move. He would have the truck there, and he just needed help getting things loaded, and then I would follow him to where they were moving, and we would unload it, which wasn't a big, big deal because they were actually moving closer to where Jamie and I and the kids lived at the time. So I said yes, and uh, when I said yes, he said, you know, the biggest thing is really going to be my gun safe. And background information, um, I did not grow up in a family where guns were around. I don't know if my family and my parents owned a gun at all when growing up. You know, we, no one in my immediate family was in a vocation of, of requiring a gun for them to have. No one was in the military in my immediate family. I have cousins and uncles and things like that that have been in the military. But growing up in the household, I, I just was not that familiar with guns. And so when he said he's going to need help with his gun safe, you know, I'd seen the cute ones they had at Walmart. They're like those little boxes. And so I thought, well, that's kind of odd. But sure, I mean, we, you know, we don't want to strain ourselves, so we'll, I'll help you out. So I asked him, what time should I be there? Uh, and he wanted to get it all knocked out in a day, did it loaded, unloaded all in one day. And so he said, well, you know, be there about 8.30. So here's some other background information about me. I grew up with a dad who was habitually late. So when practice ended at 5.30... I could sometimes expect my dad to be there at 5.30, but more than likely it was 5.45 or 6 o'clock. You would think it would be a regular occurrence for him to know, like when school let out, he should be there to pick me up after school, but there were many times where I would have to walk home uh, to wherever we lived because he forgot. And this was not at the time, students, when you could just whip out your cell phone and call, I mean, you had to do pay phone, you had to call collect, you had to look like you were calling from a prison because you, you, know, you didn't have change, you didn't have the 25 or 35 cents it took to call, and so I would just hoof it a lot of times. My dad would tell us at times, like, if we're going on vacation, we're going to leave by 8, so make sure you're ready by 8. Well, in my household, 8 quickly became 9. So, as I have grown up, I've grown up with the mentality that if you say, we're going to start at 8.30, I'm going to be there no later than 8.15. Because I'm at a place in my mind, you may not agree with me, but if I show up when you say we're going to start, then I'm late. And I know not everybody agrees with me here at Harvest Hill about that, but that's just the way I grew up. So when my friend says, let's start at 8.30, I show up at 8.15. And I took him by surprise as I knocked on his door because he answered the door in his boxers and nothing else, which made this completely awkward right off the bat. Uh, but the truck was there. It was ready. 
And I came in, and he decides to throw something on real quick, which was nice of him. He begins making breakfast, which I didn't understand that at all, because I thought we're here to move. But as I look around the house, I see that there are a lot more un or opened or empty boxes than there are packed boxes. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of moving, I do not think of packing. Does anybody else think of packing? If someone asks you, hey, can you help me move? Do you think packing goes into that? Immediately I knew something was off, and what I said yes to was not exactly what I had in mind. And so as he finished up his breakfast, I began packing their things, which becomes awkward even more when you start packing other people's undergarments. I don't mind doing it with my family, but when you are packing someone else's stuff, it's very awkward. And, and luckily his wife, she was holding the newborn baby, and so she was approving what I was doing and where I was putting it. And so I started loading stuff on the truck that I could load, and he told me his plan. He said, I want, he wanted some stuff here and some stuff here. And right in the middle is where his gun safe was going to go, because he wanted everything to have equal weight distribution. And I thought, okay, well... Where is this gun safe anyway? So he takes me back to their master bedroom, what was their master bedroom, because I, 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 don't, I don't have a gun safe. So, but is that common master bedroom decor? Okay, I see your head shaking. So, all right. So we... You want it? I understand that. But I did not realize they made, at that time, I do now, that they make gun safes larger than refrigerators and heavier than grand pianos. And I have moved grand pianos before because my mom had one and I just hated when we had to move and we would move that even just across the room because that thing was stinking heavy. And as I look at this thing, I'm like, okay. I did not realize this is what I was saying yes to. But he had a plan and so we, he had a dolly and so we, we got the dolly underneath this thing. He strapped it up tight and I said, okay, on the count of three, I'm gonna pull back with everything I've got and you're gonna push. And we're going to dip this thing up in the air. And so we did one, two, three. We got that dolly back, and we got to go through the entire house. Now, the house was only one floor, so that's a good thing, right? What I didn't mention is their driveway was at a slope, which makes the truck at a slope, which makes the ramp at a slope. And this was also a beautiful, humid August morning where dew was on the ground. We had been moving for a while, so we've been perspiring, going up and down this ramp. And as we edge closer, we get through the house, and we're huffing and puffing, we get to the ramp. And he comes up with this plan, maybe we should set this down and catch our breath. And that's the only time I told him no during this whole procedure. I said, no, we're not losing momentum. We're going to get to this, this truck. I'm going to get on the ramp. And when I count to three, I'm going to pull, and you're going to push with everything we got, and we're getting this thing in the truck, then we catch our breath. I said, okay. So I'm up on the ramp, on a slope, going into the truck, on a slope. I've got this dolly. I count to three. I pull, he pushes. And if you're familiar with cartoon characters when they hit a banana peel, my feet went straight out from under me, and that thing landed on me, and I thought, this is the dumbest way to die. <laughs> and you can see that this is pre-COVID, right? So it could not be blamed on COVID, but you can see the headline, gun violence strikes again, <laughs> pastor slewn by tons of guns at one time. And, but have you ever said, 
yes to something and not fully know what you're saying yes to. That was one of the experiences that came to my mind when I was thinking about that. And when we come to our passage of Scripture this morning, one thing that Jesus does not want us to say yes to is what it means to follow Him and to proclaim Him and to be like Him. If we had opened a conversation up this morning, open with a question, as, as a believer, should we share the gospel? What would we say? As a believer, should we represent Christ in this world? As a believer, should we become more and more Christ-like? I think we'd all agree to that. But what our passage is going to reveal this morning is that we need to understand what we're signing up for. And a lot of believers may not understand what they're signing up for. For anyone who says that being a Christian and living for Christ is meant to make your life easier, they have not read this passage. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 10, verses, beginning verse 16, and we're going to run through verse 25. And our, our passage this morning makes us ask some very important questions. Do we really want to share our faith if we know what that means for our life? Do we really want to represent Christ, knowing how some people are going to respond to that? And do we really want to become Christ-like, knowing what it leads to? Our focus this morning is, do you really want to? Let's read our passage and we'll walk through it. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious when, how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated all for my name's sake, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Disciples not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is not enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the, and the servant like his. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have been completely clear to us on what it means to belong to you. It means that we're saved. It means that we're completely forgiven. It means we have been gifted eternal life. We have been deemed your children. We belong to you. We are known by you. We have your spirit dwelling inside of us. Lord, I also think that your scripture and your word tells us what we can expect now that we belong to you. I think sometimes we have it in our minds that it should be different and it shouldn't be hard. Lord, I think your word right here tells us that's not the proper expectation. So as we walk through this passage, Lord, I ask your spirit to speak to all of our hearts, to strengthen us, to prepare us, to give us wisdom and understanding to know 
who we are and what we can expect in this world and what we have signed on to. Let this time glorify your name and your name alone. Let your will and kingdom come. Let our hearts be tuned to you. Let our ears be opened and our eyes be able to see. Forgive us, we failed you in any way. We praise on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So in our ten verses here this morning that we're going to be focusing on, again, this is kind of in context of Jesus is sending out the twelve for the first time. He is preparing them what they can expect as they go out and proclaim His name, present the gospel, and they represent Him out into the world. Well, in our ten verses, Jesus gives ten definitive statements on what to expect when we share our faith and we represent Christ and we become Christ-like. He says in verse 17 straight out that men are going to have you arrested. Verse 17, he says that you are going to be beaten. Verse 18, he tells us that you're going to be put on trial. Verse 19, he says that you're going to have words given to you to say in this moment. Then he goes to verse 21 where he tells us when we represent him, family and loved ones are going to hate us. Verse 22, he emphasizes that you're going to be hated by all. But verse 22, he also says you're going to be saved. Verse 23, he tells us that we are not going to be done doing the mission and the preaching of the gospel until all is accomplished and done. Verse 25, he tells us the purpose of this is that we're going to become like Jesus. In verse 25, he also tells us in the midst of this, you are going to be slandered or maligned. Of these ten definitive statements, there are only three positives well, at least what I deem as positive. But all three of the positives only come out of the negative. So this isn't quite a pep talk, right? I mean, if we were gathering to go out on the mission field, this is not the pep talk we would want as we get ready to go out in the name of Jesus Christ. I kind of picture Jesus in this moment as like a brave heart type image where his face is painted blue and he's telling his disciples they may take our lives but they'll never take our freedom that's really what Jesus is setting us up for is that we may die for this but we will never be taken away from God we will never lose our freedom in Christ he's telling his disciples and he's telling us now if we're going to preach him and we're going to present him and we're going to become more like Him, then we better understand this is what's going to happen. This is what it entails. Are you sure? So we're going to break down these ten things into seven expectations to know what it is that we have said yes to in becoming a Christian. First is the approach in verse 16. In verse 16, Jesus uses four animal analogies and and to give us an understanding in how we should approach this world when we present the gospel. He says that you are going to be sheep in the midst of wolves. As proclaimers of the gospel and as followers of Jesus Christ, what Jesus is telling us and telling His disciples moment is that, look, if you're representing me and you're preaching me, you are going to be in constant danger. You're going to be constantly uncomfortable if you're living for me. Sheeps were completely reliant upon the shepherd for their survival. They had no real defense mechanism. The only thing sheep could do were run away. And so they're relying upon the shepherd to give them survival and protection. And those sheep aren't 
presented as the most brightest of animals, Jesus is not referring to us here as dumb sheep. He instead is calling us to rely upon Him, the Good Shepherd. And since our, our lives are always going to be in danger as a follower of Jesus Christ, our lives are always going to be in times of uncomfortableness. It is only going to be by His power that we survive the surrounding wolves. The expression tells us we will be living in the face of danger so much that there's going to be no escape. Because this is a reality for the believer, we need to be, understand that we have to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You think of serpents in Scripture, serpents are rarely depicted in a positive light. They're typically in a negative uh, reference. But here Jesus is saying that you as a believer, we as His people need to be cunning. We need to be careful with our thought. When our lives are put into danger or threatened, we can tend to act the opposite way. We can tend to overreact. We can tend to panic. You know, I, I see people uh, on the news and in my Facebook feed as they're going out to like Yellowstone and these national parks and they're getting their lives in danger with these buffalo and these bears and they're standing there trying to get a selfie with it because they're not thinking rationally. This is not what it means to be wise as serpents. You have to think rationally in the midst of danger. You have to use your wits that God has given you. You have to be thoughtful and use the ability that God has given us as His people to think rationally, even when things are uncomfortable, even when we may be danger, in danger. So we don't act like serpents. We don't become hostile, but instead we're innocent as doves. The word innocent can be read as harmless, unmixed, and pure. The dove is thought to be one of the most faithful of all birds. And since we're going to be in the face of danger, we have to be able to keep our wits about us, and we must remain faithful to God so we can remain pure. And I think sometimes this isn't what the world sees when it comes to Christianity. We did in those uncomfortable debates and those uncomfortable conversations. And instead of being innocent as does, we become as violent as serpents. And we lash back out. We try to defend ourselves and we, we act like we have to defend the Almighty by our words. And Jesus says, don't do this. Don't be vicious like a serpent, but be wise like one so that you can remain faithful. Understanding why we need this approach, Jesus then goes into verse 17. He says, beware of men. For they will deliver you over to their courts and flog you in their synagogues. Verse 17 is definitely speaking of about the Jewish people. In verse 18 it says, You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. That's definitely speaking about the Gentile people. To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. The expectation that Jesus has given us is that we can expect the dangers. The word men here doesn't specify like as in a gender, like a father would tell his daughter to stay away from boys. It's referring to individuals who still live in this world, who are therefore defined as enemies of God and live in opposition to who God is. And at this time, though, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and previously he told them, you are to stay in the region of Galilee. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Stay amongst the Jewish people. As he's laying out these marching orders and these expectations, he's revealing that the ultimate mission of the gospel is to go into all the world. But the danger, as we go into the world and we preach the gospel and present Jesus Christ, the danger is always going to be people. It does not matter their nationality. It does not matter their background. It's always going to be people. 
The courts is definitely referring to the Jewish judicial system. The governors and kings has a much larger audience in mind. As believers, I think we tend to think that we shouldn't be putting ourselves in dangerous positions. And Jesus isn't telling us in this moment, look, I want you to run into danger. I want you to run into persecution. But He is telling us, you need to be aware that if you're going to live for Me, and you're going to preach Me, and you're going to become like Me, you are going to find yourself in dangerous situations. But in those situations, there is a purpose. He says there at the end of verse verse 18, the purpose is to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Living Translation reads it like this, but this will be an opportunity to tell rulers and other unbelievers about me. There's going to be dangers. There's going to be uncomfortableness in being Christ-like and living for Christ. But the ultimate point and purpose of those things is to be given an opportunity to proclaim Christ. But don't sometimes we do the opposite? We get uncomfortable We feel like the conversation is becoming a little tense, and so instead of proclaiming Him, we tend to step back. We change it. We talk about the weather. We talk about sports. We talk about something that everyone wants to talk about. See, not everyone's going to want to talk about Christ. This verse sheds a whole new light on sharing the gospel. I know some of us, who here has not had a fear of sharing the gospel at least once in your life? We all have, and, and this verse backs that feeling of being timid, of being reserved and sharing the gospel, not wanting to create an awkward moment. But what this verse doesn't do, nor does anywhere in Scripture, it does not give us permission to succumb to that fear. Now, I'm sad to admit that there's only been a few times in my life when I've been living for Christ that my, I felt my life has been threatened. Only one particular time did I actually have a gentleman come up to me and tell me it would be a wise decision for you to go buy a gun. In America, we don't have these sort of threats, but they do happen. We're probably not going to see the end of our life. We may have people persecute us. We may have family members turn on us, but this is exactly what Jesus says is going to happen. Why is there so much hostility to Christianity. As human beings, we are born with a sinful nature. And in that sinful nature, we are told a lie that we actually believe. And here it is. We're pretty good people. We're really not that bad. I mean, we can find someone in history or maybe even someone in our own life to say, well, at least I'm not like them. And all people have this lie built into them by the sinful nature. And because we feel that we're okay or we're pretty good, then that means we don't really need anything else to better ourselves. And since we're pretty good people are not like that, we actually feel that we're a warranted heaven. I mean, if you ask a typical American today, do you think when you die you're going to heaven? A typical American will tell you, yes. They may not go to church. They may not know Jesus Christ. But they will tell you, yes, on the grounds that I'm a good person. Why would God send a good person to hell? But Jesus and the gospel, what we proclaim is this. No one is good. No one is righteous. 
There is only one who is good and one who is righteous, and he died for us because we aren't. And when we get in conversations like that and people have this, this feeling that, well, I'm a good person, and we have to come out with the gospel, the very fact, you have to start with the gospel like this, you're not that good. You're sinful. And in your sin, you are actually living in the wrath and the judgment of God in this moment. And you're not going to heaven. God's not going to give you a pass. You're heading to hell in this moment. And when you get into those real conversations, because you have to understand the holiness of God before you can understand your need for a Savior, and those conversations people don't want to hear. They don't want to be a part of that. People do not want to hear that they have something wrong with them. I mean, do you like hearing that about yourself? Hey, you look nice today, but, you know, we don't like to hear that. We like to think we've got it all figured out. And so there's going to be hostility. But Jesus says in the midst of the danger, there is aid. Verse 19 and 20. When they deliver you, that, he's like, look, it's, hap- it's going to happen. When they, not if they. When they deliver you, do not be anxious. Do not worry how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus tells us in the midst of hostility, of men, of people living in opposition to God, don't worry. So when they they come to harm you, don't fret. Don't fear. Don't become overwhelmed on how you think you should respond, whether it's physically or verbally. Why? Because in the midst of that, the Spirit of your Father is going to take over. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus reveals the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower His people. This is why we can know at this moment, Jesus isn't just speaking about this ministry as they go out to Galilee. He's speaking about the worldwide evangelism effort that's going to take place when He ascends into the heavens. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and is going to give you the words and the powers in those moments when you are in danger, when you are uncomfortable. And Jesus is telling them and us, the aid will be present. Therefore, submit to God. Don't submit to this fear that begins bubbling up in in you. The Bible tells us that for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. So when we go out into the world and we face persecution, here's the good news. God comes to defend us. He rises up as our warrior and our shield and our protection and our mighty tower. It does not mean when this danger comes that the pain is going to go away or the danger is going to go away. Jesus never says that. Jesus never promises in His Word that as a believer, life is going to be rainbows and lollipops. Never. Titles like books of your best life now, which I know some preachers present and try to sell, that doesn't fit in this passage. Jesus is not saying your best life is going to be now. He says, if you're living for me, your best life is going to be later. When you're with me, 
Because right now, people are not going to like you because of who I am and who you represent. So be aware of that. You're going to face dangers. There is going to be aid to come, but you also must expect the pain. Verse 21 through 22, Jesus gives a very tragic image of family and loved ones turning on one another. And they're not turning on one another because of politics. Not turning on one another because of conspiracy theories or their views of COVID or even which sports teams they celebrate. Jesus says that family and loved ones are going to turn on each other because of Christ. And Jesus shows the gravity of it all by saying they're not only going to just turn on each other, but family and loved ones are going to put each other to death. And you're going to have family and loved ones that are going to hate you because you belong to me and you bear my name. That's a reality check, isn't it? I didn't know that's what I was signing up for. That Thanksgiving meals are going to become uncomfortable? Oh, wait, that does happen, doesn't it? The family and social gatherings are going to make me feel awkward? That people are actually going to tell me to just shut up? Stop talking about it? They will stop inviting me to hang out with them? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Look out into his world. I, I watch the news, even though I, I, I don't want to, but I, I want to know what's going on. And I see this country and I see this world falling further and further away from God. I don't think you can watch the news and, and know God's word and, and not see that. But I think we also forget here in America that America was never intended to be a safe haven for Christians. America, God did not create America for America to be heaven on earth. And so when I look in Scripture and when I look in history, the greatest moments of revival and the greatest moments of church growth happened in the midst of persecution and happened in the midst when the world was turning away from God. And then a light shone into the darkness. But the more and more this country and the more and more this world becomes away from God and falling away from Him, the more hostile we can expect and hostility we can expect from those people who are in power and from those people we love the most. You know, this isn't much of a pep talk, but Jesus is delivering a real expectation and a mentality as we live as sojourners and exiles in this world. David Platt writes concerning this passage, Everyone who wants a safe, carefree life from danger should stay away from Christ. The world responds with hostility to Him. So as you are conformed to Christ more and more, the world will respond to us more and more as they responded to Him. If you want to avoid being betrayed, hated, or persecuted, then don't become like Christ. This brings us to the question we must ask, do we really want to be like Christ? Because if we really do want to be like Him, then our lives won't stay the same, and they won't be easy. They will be dangerous. This is what Jesus, your Savior, Lord, and King is saying. Yet throughout all this danger, throughout all the pain, Jesus promised 
relief in verse 22 through 23. Jesus says when we go through these things and we stand firm in the faith, we stand firm in our reliance upon Him, we will find salvation. Here's the reality, and we're going to talk about this more next week. If we die for Christ, what happens? We get to go live with Christ. Well, that's a win. If we live for Christ now, that means we have to die to ourselves so we can represent Christ. And Jesus is telling us when persecution comes, He's not saying you better stay there in the midst of it. He says you are to flee. Be like a good sheep and run. I'll protect you. Why? Because the mission must go on. It doesn't end. And it will never end until He comes back. We're never going to run out of people or places to share the gospel. The mission will never be complete until all has come to completion in Jesus Christ. But why would we want to do that? <laughs> why would I say yes to this? Because Jesus says there's a goal. Verse 24 through 25. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is not enough. It is enough for disciples to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. The goal of Christianity, the goal of enduring persecution, the goal of preaching the gospel and presenting the gospel and becoming more like Christ, that's the goal. Is so I can become Christ-like. So when people look at my life, they see Jesus. They hear Jesus. They see good news. But here's the reality. Read through the Gospels and tell me, did everybody like Jesus when Jesus was there? No. Yet we've got this lie in our head that everyone should like us, even though we represent Him. And that doesn't fit Scripture. The good news is, some people don't like you. It's not necessarily about you. <laughs> But some people don't like you because of who you belong to and who you represent. But the goal is to remain faithful so we can be like our teacher and like our master. And then we expect the result. You know, verse 25. If they've called the master of the house of Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? The result is this. We will be treated like Christ. Let's think about that for a second. We all said we should be Christ-like. We all agreed to that in the beginning. If we should be Christ-like, and we should preach the message of Christ, present Christ, then the goal is that we be treated like Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, when He lived on this earth, He was surrounded by tons of people. And if you're a people pleaser, this passage is going to make you cringe. If it, it drives you nuts that you can't make everyone happy in your life, then being a Christian is going to be very difficult for you. Because in Jesus' own life, He was betrayed by those closest to Him. In his own life, he was ridiculed by people 
he was trying to save. In his own life, he was belittled by his own family members. He was sentenced to death by people you would think would be the most trustworthy. So when we say, I want to be like Christ and we should become like Christ, then we have to understand the expectation. If I'm going to become like Christ, then I can assume I'm going to be treated like Christ in this world. And I don't think everybody knows that's what they sign on to. Because that's heavier than a gun safe. But that's what it says. When I say I'm a Christian, it's not so I can check a box. It's so I can be and live this. Christianity doesn't call for weak stomachs. People without Christ aren't going to like us. They aren't going to support what we support. They aren't going to like us because we don't support what they support. We don't support how they talk or the things they do or even how they treat others. We don't agree with their theories and their ideologies because they don't match in the pages of Scripture. And because we are not going to support them because we're going to be people of the Word, what this happens, what happens is it typically leads people to get offended. And when they get offended, they get aggressive. And this is what we can expect. This calling isn't to live for people. It isn't even to live for this world, but to live for Christ. And so now that we know the terms, the question isn't, why would I want to do this? Or do we really want to live for Christ? Instead, it's the understanding, I was saved to live for Christ, and now I know what to expect. Now I know why people act the way they act around me. That's a good thing, because they see Christ in me. You may be hearing this first time and you're like, why in the world would I sign on to that? I like people. I like when people like me. Why would I sign on to that? Because here's the truth in here. Without Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, you are lost. You're lost. And you're heading to hell. You are living in the wrath of God in this moment. And so why would you sign on to this? Because this is the only way to change your condition before a Holy Father. God did not create you for eternal destruction. He created you for eternal life with Him in heaven. And your sin is separating you from your purpose to which you were created. And as we already say, you can't be good enough. You can't be better than some guy down the street or some person in history. You can only be found in Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to Father except through Him. And so if you're here, and you're thinking, why would I sign on to that if people are going to respond to me in that way? It's because you need to be saved, because this life is not meant to be your best life. Your best life is waiting in heaven. You need to be saved from your sins. It begins by admitting to God that you're a sinner, by believing God sent Jesus Christ to die for your sins, and He did, and He rose again, and understanding that that is what forgives you past, present, and future completely. And you become a child of His. 
If you're here this morning and you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, you know the terms now. You believe that this in your heart to be true, that Jesus died for you and rose again. We're going to have a time of invitation. We'll be down here. The Bible says you must confess Him as your Lord and Savior. Confession is public. It is a public testimony. You just come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want Christ in my life. Maybe you can come and kneel before the Father because you bought into the lie that Christianity is meant to be safe. It's not. It's uncomfortable. You just need to come and kneel before the Father and, and repent of that American Christian mentality. Nick and Bridget are going to come and lead us in a song. I want to pray over us and invite you to come. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you, Lord, that you don't hide any of the details, even if it's hard to hear. But Lord, thank you that in the midst of anything we go through, you're right there with us. You promise in your word you never leave us or forsake us, and nothing can separate us from you. Father, forgive us if we've been trying to be safe. Maybe we don't want to offend our neighbor or a coworker. We don't want to get in that awkward, uncomfortable conversation or situation. Forgive us, Lord. That is a sin. You tell us in your word, we're going to be sheep in the midst of wolves. Give us the courage and the boldness to live that way. Forgive me if I failed you in any way. Come this time, Lord, to respond to you, to not just to be a hearer of your word, but to be a doer. We praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.